Chapter 70 A child can go down into the depths of parental numbness. It doesn't matter how old the child is or the parent. The umbilical is sometimes a lifeline thrown to the future with which a mother can hope to haul herself up the well of her own dying. And children can so rarely tear themselves from around that well. A parent present but absent can be the bottomless quicksand of an entire lifetime. Tom thought about his mother's revelation long and hard. It consumed him, invaded him. He thought about it before going to sleep. He dreamt about it. It greeted him on awakening during the instant evolution of abandoning sleep. I am a carbon-based life form. I am human. I am Tom. I am not my father's son. He briefly considered writing to Gunther, but got stuck on the salutation. Dear... And it really should be something they talked about face to face. It became more and more important because in the weeks after the Rhineland crisis, Ruth seemed to go down even further. Something was gnawing at the root of her soul, and Tom knew that it wouldn't be long until that root would give way and she would fall further into the numb, floating center of the earth. The lengths of his responsibilities gnawed at him as well. Tom began to truly hate Quentin. It was not a resentful hatred. It was not just reactive. He hated both Quentin and Reginald because they provoked suffering and then stood by with slight smiles as it writhed at their feet. They weakened people with scorn and indifference, then turned them over with their toes to mock their weakness. It's like knocking someone down, then calling them lazy for lying around. He felt some frustration with his mother as well, but much, much less. It is always harder to pin responsibility on the feminine. Ruth was not free, not politically, not economically, not socially. She had been forced to make a choice by society, biology, it didn't matter which, in the full blindness of youth when her future was almost completely unconscious and so inevitable. Tom wept on waking one morning, thinking of his mother's potential, and felt that he had come as close as he ever had to the root of her depression. She is a wonderful political wife. She is very intelligent. She is moral, quite moral in her own way. She chose her husband for all the shallow, impractical reasons of youth. She was passionate. Imagine her having an affair, then covering it up, then being so full of anger that she denounced her lover at every step. The will to keep such secrets. 
for they were kept, and magnificently too, to have Gunther in our house during the war. My God, I wonder if they made love that rainy day, when Reginald refused to put the destroyer away, when Gunther locked him away. She had a headache, and he ordered her back to bed. And Quentin let it all happen. Quentin had no idea, idea unless, of course, Quentin did have an idea, but felt that it swashed something, took responsibility away from him to make her happy. And, of course, Quentin has secrets of his own. You can almost smell his secrets. They waft from his pores like spices left damp and underground. It was hard work burrowing through the choking maze of family secrets, like pushing his way back up into a womb of truth. Tom felt a kind of terror mingled with a peculiar relief. It had always felt as if his family was sliding past him or around him. We are all like magnets facing the wrong way. We rush to embrace. We slide around. Lying on his bed, unable to get up in the morning, curled almost in a fetal position, Tom let endless little histories crawl through him. Countless conversations where he had been suppressed by silence, by scorn, by evasion, by cruel humor. The feeling that Quentin wanted to spend time with Reginald and spent time with Tom grudgingly just to avoid the repercussions of perceived injustice. Quentin and Reginald would go fishing for a weekend Quentin and Tom would go to the motion pictures for half an afternoon. And it was rare that both sons would be included in the same outing. A camping weekend would be arranged with one or two other families, but Quentin and Reginald would drop out, and Tom would simmer all weekend, half expecting to come across Quentin and his brother toasting marshmallows around a fire, giggling at the success of their subterfuge. When he was... Very young. Tom had a terror of being left behind. And now he had some more understanding of why. Reginald and the cook had once gone into market to get some vegetables and Tom had wanted to be left behind. He loved the silence of an empty house. He wanted to run through it naked and do dive rolls onto the sofa. But as soon as the door had closed behind them, Tom had felt a terrible gnawing ache in his heart. <gasps> he was being left behind. All pleasure of having the house to himself was gone. He imagined everyone having fun in the market, bursting into song and handing out free toys, little metal cars and faded stretched balloons. But when Reginald and the cook returned, Reginald having had his usual conspicuous fun, Tom wanted to be alone again. The image of balloons 
lingered in Tom's mind for a moment, like the ringing of a long sound suddenly cut off. Balloons. One red balloon, actually, in a bright blue sky. Leaving... Ah, yes, it all came back in a rush. One day, Catherine had taken Tom and Reginald to a county fair. It was quite a disappointment to both children. Little pony rides, toffee apples, unshaven men, dirty gypsy women who seemed to be wearing ten dresses. Everything was grimy and smelled of oil. But there were balloons. Catherine bought them one each. Then they wandered over to a large field where little clumps of children stood. Catherine told them that the sign overhead said, Balloon Race! You attached your name to a balloon and let it go, and a town over, a man was waiting. If your balloon came down first, you won a big prize. Tom couldn't remember just what a pony came to mind now, but that was too ridiculous. Reginald had clutched his hand white on his balloon string, refusing to let go, but Tom had entered the competition. He had let go of his balloon quite consciously, feeling the little white cramp in his hand loosen because he was always terrified of letting go of his string accidentally. He, Catherine, and Reginald had stood watching his red balloon rise into the blue sky. It seemed to go straight up. It was a strange day. It felt almost biblical because it was the first day that Tom remembered seeing the moon in the sky during the day. It wasn't far from the rising path of his balloon, and Tom knew that it was a very early memory because he felt tense about his balloon's chances. If it got snagged on the moon, all was over. It would burst and hang in the sky, and Tom would get into trouble. Or it would come back in a sad, ragged slither, and he would lose both race and balloon. But as he watched, Tom realized that he had lost his balloon and the race was nonsense. He didn't even know in what town the mystery man might be waiting, and the chance of his balloon falling into the man's hands. He felt anger at his own participation, then at his greed for the prize without a thought for the game. And Reginald knew, even then, because Tom's strongest memory was seeing his brother's leering face peering from around Catherine's bright dress. He still had his balloon and played with it for days, even when it could barely float anymore, and kept saying as he giggled and batted it around, Don't worry, Tommy, your prize will be here any minute now. Tom found himself wondering what had happened to that balloon. Perhaps it had floated down from the sky on the unsuspecting head of some unhappy little girl and changed her whole day. Perhaps her life given her faith in the generosity of the random skies. He shook his head, almost under the covers, low on air, but unwilling to lift his blankets. No, it's about my birth. He thought now about the balloon with string and its resemblance to a sperm. A wild chance, not a kept certainty. Oh, it was hard to unravel. But that's nonsense thought Tom almost angrily. I refused to think that I could make such associations at the age of five or six before I knew anything about reproduction. I refused to think that I can possess such knowledge that I ever could because 
Because if I could... He sniffled then. His heart contracted in a painful ache. Because if I can have such knowledge, then everyone can have such knowledge. Then everyone knows what is coming. They are not blind. They are inviting. That was too great a mystery to be absorbed. The idea that Reginald and his father, and Klaus, and those at Oxford who had voted to refuse to fight, and those who had voted for the peace ballot which influenced British politicians so much, and everyone who wanted to lay down their arms for the cause of peace, the idea that this was not done in error, but in hidden knowledge, in... in... in what? What the hell am I thinking about? Am I laying the charge on the majority of the human race that they do not want to live? That they know what is coming and encourage it because they do not want to live? The thought electrified and horrified him. Ah, take a gun to a man's temple, he will stare and shit and scramble. But if the gun is to come slowly in the midst of a choir and being praised by tall men in tall hats, and the man that is told that he must shoot himself for the sake of the tribe, then he will take it up with a song in his heart, or with resentment and anger, no matter, he will take it up. Society is a pageant of sashaying suicide. It was certainly the case with the Germans, with the cheering crowds in the Rhineland, perhaps with the seething extremists in the streets of Paris. They knew what was coming. They could not claim ignorance. Hitler had been clear, specific, repetitive. Their mixture of freedom and compulsion was not working. They attacked only the free parts. The poison in my food is making me sick. Very well. Let there be no more food on my plate. And Hitler wanted war. He was specific about that. The Germans wanted to die in battle. They did not want long lives. They did not want grandchildren. They wanted an orgy of violence and a spray of red death. They wanted camaraderie, drinking, charging, and a savage release. They did not fear the trenches. Their living rooms held more terror. And what kind of person wants this kind of life? What kind of sickness wants death, but is too cowardly to kill itself? A philosophical sickness, of course. People who want to die kill themselves. People who believe that life is death want to kill themselves. When suicide is no longer a personal choice, but a universal absolute, it becomes war. Tom shook his head again, pulled back his covers and gulped some air. Uh, this is getting me nowhere. How did I get from my family to German nihilism? 
What gives Reginald pleasure? What makes him get out of bed in the morning? What gives him satisfaction? It must be his work, because he's married to... Well, Wendy is another example of the principle that sexy in the beginning is bitchy later, a lesson which men always seem to need relearning. He likes Quentin, they get along. He doesn't seem to take much pleasure in his children. He doesn't have any hobbies. He must get a sense of self-importance from his position. He is in tight with that Cuthbert fellow who seems to wield real power. Cuthbert's view in Paris over the Rhineland became government policy. Ah, this train of thought was also getting him nowhere. Tom had never been able to figure out his brother. He threw his covers aside and sat up rubbing his face. Then he got up, put on a dressing gown, and went to his mother's room. From downstairs he could hear Reginald and Quentin's voices raised in argument. Mother, he asked, knocking. Hearing the murmur of her voice, he went in. She was sitting up, gazing out the window, chewing a piece of toast in her hand, a tray on her legs. The orange juice was bloody. How did you sleep? he asked. Ruth turned and smiled. Quite well, actually. I felt I was being pressed flat recently, but I have a little more shape this morning. We have to fight the mother. She stared at her son. He frowned. He could never be sure if she was upset or rebellious or agreeing or just placid, waiting for more. He said, This is the only way out, the only way forward. Quentin is, she flinched at the word, he is sort of a cornerstone of appeasement in Parliament. He's always crossing swords with Churchill. If he changes his mind about appeasement, it won't change anything in the voting, but but it might discredit his movement. It will. No, I know it will. It has to. He's a keystone. It will make people think, give them pause. Everyone is so polarized. Absolute. If he crosses the floor, others might follow. It doesn't mean war, mother. Seeing her stricken face and feeling like a minor murderer, Tom sat on her bed, took her tray, and kissed her hands. It doesn't mean that we'll go to war, but it means that we'll be ready if it comes, because we know it's coming, and it can only be averted if we're ready. Ruth didn't blink. Tom felt alarmed, but plunged on. To ask, but I have no influence. I never had. No. I don't hate to ask. I think you have something to atone for, Mother. Not a wrong, but a lie. You have to do things differently this time. We all have to do things differently. I can't stand this life where everything happens over and over again. We have to be free to. Break free! You sacrificed your happiness to be with, with him, with Quentin. You, you, you fought against Gunther last time. Everything is a pattern. Reginald fights against me. Quentin fights against Gunther. 
You acted badly last time, but you were young, and now you know, and you have confessed to me. And the years between and the words we have spoken, what do they matter if we still always act the same? Why think? Why live? Why speak? Why be silent? Why reflect if nothing changes as a result? Oh, mother, if I could take my joy of life, my vitality, and give it to you, I would. Even if it was just for a day to show you how life can be. But I can't, and it drives me mad. All I can do is tell you what I think can give that to you. <laughs> what you have to do to be happy. He was weeping openly now, and her eyes were softening slowly. God, I can't stand that you are unhappy. But the last joy you had was with... Gunther over twenty years ago. I would destroy society if its rules kept you from what you love. Because you do love him. I know you do. And he loves you. I mean, to have forgiven you then and to still care now so many years after. He has to, as you have to. Because you both have this terrifying integrity. Otherwise, you wouldn't have suffered so much. And you don't love him, that man downstairs. Her hand rose up and slapped him. His eyes widened slowly, but he continued, his voice weakening to a whisper. I feel as if I'm sinking into quicksand, mother, going under. And I'm not alone. It's worse than being alone. Everyone is standing around arguing whether sand exists or telling me to will myself out. <sighs> do you ever feel that? I think you do. I know you do. And it drives me mad because I can't do anything else to save us. <sighs> I can fly all over Europe and tell Gunther and Churchill what is happening, but it won't be enough. I can feel it. Because it's not information that we lack. Everything is wide open for us to see. It's not sight we lack, but eyes. And I need your help. Mother, I need you to talk to him, to change his mind, to do everything you did all those years ago against Gunther, but now against him, against Quentin, against your husband. And it might not save us at all. But if the bombs come, and if we have done all we could to prevent them, then we can die content, without guilt, without guile. Oh, mother, if you knew what could be around the corner for you, if you did this thing, then you would jump out of bed and feel no more weariness in your bones. We cannot save the world. We can only save ourselves. Stop. Ruth whispered, and there was such horror in her voice that Tom's tongue halted immediately, and it felt as if she had cast a magic spell upon him that would freeze his tongue forevermore. 
Stop, she repeated, shaking her head slightly. You do not understand. You are a brute of a man, a strapping man without a thought to... <laughs> for limitations? How could I live? Tom willed his tongue to move. You... You are not living. Yes, snapped his mother. Something fierce passed behind her eyes. Yes, but I am containing all my wrongs. I am harboring them. A dangerous zoo. What do you think, that a woman can speak against her husband in public? Her voice dropped to a whisper. Such a public man. I would be ridiculed. I would have no effect. Can you imagine a woman in bed with hysteria takes up against appeasement? Do you think that would do you any good? Tom nodded slowly. He felt another wave of pain. That such a brilliant woman, mother or not, should be so helpless, so impotent, that all who saw were silenced. Can't you argue with him? You joined him on the campaign trail in 31. Why? Didn't that help him? There's just been an election, she replied, the fierce animation leaving her eyes. He doesn't need me any more. Can you do nothing? cried Tom, suddenly enraged. He wanted to shake his mother by the neck to wring some semblance of life from her wasted frame. Shh! Oh! he groaned. Why am I always the one coming in here and begging for action? You could stop a fucking train with a sigh. Tom, he jumped up from the bed. Dear God, I am just sad that I will have to burn with the lot of you. He whirled and reached out for his mother. Why can't you act? Why do you say no to everything? To me, to Gunther, to peace, to action, to goodness, to saving, to any kind of effectiveness. God. All the goodness in the world is paralyzed. Why? Why do we let these bastards rule us? And what? what is his secret? Why? How does he keep you so far down? I can't even see you anymore, mother. You spoke to me endlessly when I was a child. You filled me up with so many useless words. You complained about your father. Yes, I shall speak even of that. I shall even question the most holy of your altars. You did nothing but, but agonize over the war, and you never told me the truth about any of it, about my... my father, about your father, the part you played in his death, in the deaths of all of them, the famous brothers. You used me all those years because you did not tell me the truth. You threw into me all the words you could not stand because they were flies on a corpse of lies. If you wanted to tell me the truth, so be it. If not, why did you fill me? with so many lies. Tom's words struck home. Ruth's eyes began to fill with tears.
And now, he said, his voice lower, you are still making me do all the work, mother. I have to keep coming in here to save you. And now I ask you to help save me. You, of course, as well, but that doesn't matter. Just think of me. It might bring you some relief. Indulge me. Save me. Do what I ask as I have done everything you ask. The words tumbled out of him from some endless geyser of core truth in his soul. I fight against war, mother, because you filled me with such a horror of war that I would do anything to keep such sorrow from the world. Such destruction. I have seen it so closely, mother. You pressed my face to it all the days of my youth. And now, when war is coming, once more you say that you are helpless in the face of it. I will not accept it, mother. You cannot be so cruel. You cannot claim to have suffered and then be so cruel to me. You cannot have harmed me with your false sorrow, then refuse to help me stop its true recurrence. Because if you refuse to help me now, I will know that I was used all those years when I sat on this bed, a receptacle for your endless lies. Tom paused for a brief moment as his eyes widened. And, and you used me as well, just now when you told me the truth of my parentage. Because you wanted to unburden yourself. Not change, not act. Just drive me mad with knowledge that could never be employed. And I will not be used, mother. You were the last anchor holding me here. You get hit by a train, I come for the funeral and then never return. What, to sit with a false father and half-brother? Fucking nonsense! So think about it, mother. Think about whether you will decide to help me. Think about whether you want to make up for all the lies you force-fed me. Whether honor can be rescued from abuse. Think about it long and hard, because I know that I am the only reason you are still here. And if you do not redeem yourself, I will never come anymore, and you will be alone with them for the rest of your days. Tom was panting. He heard heavy footsteps on the stairs. He wiped his sweaty face with a quick, shaking hand. His mother turned her face to the door. It seemed perfectly composed. Quentin and Reginald burst in. "'What the hell is going on?' demanded Quentin. "'We could hear you from downstairs!' "'Nothing,' said Ruth brightly. "'Tom was just telling me the funniest story.' Chapter 71 The world was quiet for two years. There had been great fury as the Nazi beast settled into its lair, snorting flame and growing its endless scales. But after the remilitarization of the Rhineland, Hitler withdrew from foreign affairs. The appeasers had won the day. They had left the dictator nations alone, and the dictators remained satisfied with the torture and murder of their own peoples. 
the cancer of absolutism had gone into remission. Tensions relaxed in the West. Most felt that a disaster had been narrowly averted. The voices still crying for rearmament, Churchill and increasingly Anthony Eden, the foreign secretary, were considered both amusing and irritating, like a passenger in a car still panicking two miles after a near miss. Those who still considered Germany a threat were swiftly dealt with. Eden was fired. Churchill continued to harangue from his mount in the political wilderness. Sir Eric Phipps, the British ambassador to Germany, said clearly and repeatedly throughout the early 30s that Germany intended to take Austria, Czechoslovakia, expand into the east and recover some colonies. He was replaced by Neville Henderson, who agreed with Phipps, but said that such actions did not necessarily threaten British interests. British foreign policy seemed wedded to the proposition that all efforts must be made to avoid the need for the use of force. This aim was more important than any other single consideration, including treaties, moral judgments, honour, or long-term national interests. If overt violence could be avoided, no violence was being done. It was a simple enough proposition. In 1937, the rumours began. At first they were outside mutterings, vague intimations, but then they began to mount with unexpected rapidity. Hitler wanted Austria. The Nazis had been interested in Austria for a long time. In July 1934, the Austrian Nazi party had murdered Chancellor Dollfuss in the most brutal manner, leaving him to groan out his life in a pool of blood for hours. Democracy had been suspended. And Hitler was a new kind of virus, not just internally, but internationally. He had been funneling millions of Deutschmarks to the Austrian Nazis, funding their terrorist activities against the remnants of the state. He fermented endless strife and murder, which he hoped to use as a pretext for an invasion to restore order. This kind of activity was not covered under any treaties. It was a new kind of warfare. It fed the evasions of the appeasers. Treaties covered formal declarations of war, columns of helmeted men marching across historical borders. They did not cover terrorism, puppet states, and requests for aid from beleaguered governments unable to keep order. Hitler's terrible genius was discovering that theatre could win more land than arms. Hitler claimed that he did not want Austria or Czechoslovakia or anything, in fact, other than what he already had, the Saar region, the Rhineland. He had no more territorial ambitions in Europe. He told the appeasers what they wanted to hear. He undermined the hawks. Hitler, the consummate liar, understood the duplicity of the appeasers. He understood their terror of war, their pragmatism, their beyond-good-and-evil philosophy. They both understood each other. The Germans were not subtle. They probed, they felt out the resolve of the Allies. One day in 1937, Churchill got a message from the German ambassador von Ribbentrop to come and meet him in the German embassy. 
When Churchill arrived, he was shown upstairs to a large, ornate meeting-room where von Ribbentrop awaited him. The blond German was in his forties. He was agitated and constantly fidgeting. "'Ah, Mr. Churchill,' he said, offering an armchair, "'thank you for coming.' "'I am glad to come,' said Churchill. "'I feel that you have misrepresented my position in several speeches of yours.' "'Oh? In what manner?' You seem to indicate that I am in favour of granting additional territorial concessions with Germany. And this is not the case. It is not. Ah. Von Ribbentrop seemed nonplussed. He smoothed his oiled hair back from his broad forehead. Then he smiled, fine wrinkles spreading from the edges of his blue eyes. But there is no need for this to be a misrepresentation. Why not? Because there is no need for England and Germany to be enemies. No need in the world, unless Germany has not finished her expansion. But, mein Gott, cried von Ribbentrop, you cannot expect us to remain hemmed in forever. From here to kingdom come, we have over 65 million people, breeding like rabbits. The Fuhrer likes children and blondes. Are we supposed to start standing on each other's heads? So you are saying that Germany does have territorial ambitions? Yes, unless our population recedes. But this need not be of concern to England. Why should it be? Our countries have been at war this century, but it has not always been so. You are not still suspicious of Spain, or France, or even America, which stole the entire New World from your redcoats. We wish to be on good terms with England. We can help defend the British Empire. Perhaps in exchange for a few inconsequential colonies to satisfy the Fuhrer's vanity? He is a vain man, of course, but we all have our vices. Germany respects England. I respect you. Together we could be potent, more than potent, invincible. All we ask in return is for a free hand in the east, for space to grow. For we must grow either east or west. It is in no one's interest that we grow west. All we require is some liberty in the matter of reabsorbing Poland and the Danzig Corridor. Churchill smiled. It is impossible. We could never allow that. Von Ribbentrop's eyes flashed, but his lips compressed instantly. Why not? What possible consequence could it be if we absorbed the Danzig Corridor? And Poland? Will England slaughter her youth to save such a detestable land? To come to the aid of such murdering Slavs? It is not a question of the nature of the lands you wish to attack, replied Churchill. You could attack Russia, and we should still fall upon your throat. Why? demanded von Ribbentrop. Why? Because England will not allow Germany to become dominant in Europe. Why? What have we done that is so terrible? Oh, please do not repeat to me the fiction that Germany alone started the last war, for we both know that is nonsense. But it is not nonsense. Germany did start the last war. Von Ribbentrop leapt up. I consider that statement an affront to the honour of Germany. Germany's honour, replied Churchill evenly died on the night of the long knives. I do not consider the Nazi party to be the legitimate heirs to the land of Schiller, Goethe, Beethoven, or even Bismarck, who was a soldier who did not stoop to petty terrorism to achieve his ends, but rather fought in the open like a man. You are overstepping the bounds of hospitality, cried von Ribbentrop. Churchill stood, brushed his coat, then leaned forward, placing his knuckles on the desk. I am a guest in this embassy, he said in a low voice, but this embassy is also a guest on British soil.
You invited me here to hear the truth. Very well. I say that if you attempt to expand to the east, west, south, or north, we shall oppose you with all the means and allies at our disposal, and we shall not stop at your borders like the last time. We shall drive into the heart of Berlin and undo the very soul of Germany. Von Ribbentrop stared at him for a long moment. Then there will be war. It is inevitable. There is no way out. The Führer is resolved. Nothing will stop him, and nothing will stop us. Churchill nodded slowly. But we will stop you. Von Ribbentrop laughed. With what? Appeasement and broken treaties. Hitler was right about the Rhineland. Do you know, he didn't sleep for the entire week beforehand. None of us did. We had nothing in the Rhineland. Our soldiers weren't even armed. If England or France had stirred even a little finger, we would have been beaten back and the army would have struck us down for taking such a risk. <laughs> we would be no more. He laughed again. <laughs> and now... <laughs> you, say, you say that you will stop us? Oh, please, Mr. Churchill, you will make my sides ache. <laughs> if you did not try to stop us last year when we were far, far weaker, why will you try now or next year or the year after? Churchill said, You must not underestimate England, Herr von Ribbentrop. She is a curious country. Many nations have broken themselves against our will because they misjudged our resolution. You must not make the mistake of judging us by our current administration or its ignoble policies. If you talk of war, and it will be a world war, then the actions we take may surprise you. When the English people are presented with a great cause, they will rise as one. If you bring this spectre once more to Europe, and to England, since our respective peoples will not escape this time, then we shall bend our will to nothing less than the utter destruction of your land and its people, and we shall bring the whole world against you, as we did the last time. But the result will be far, far worse for Germany, and for yourself, personally. Ah! snarled von Ribbentrop, his mask falling to reveal the feral scun. Ah, England may be very clever, as you say, but she will not bring the world against us. We shall take the East, and then when we are satisfied we shall turn to the West, and England shall either bow or we shall take this island field by bloody field. Churchill did not respond. He remained gazing into von Ribbentrop's eyes. The German dropped his gaze first. Churchill took his leave with a heavy heart. He went to his flat, wrote up an account of the meeting, and sent it to the Foreign Office. It landed on Hart's desk. Hart read it with a rising shock of apprehension. Hart had been at the FO for two years. He worked for Reginald. 
He had taken the job at Tom's insistence, intending to stay for only a few months, but something in the place had grabbed him by the neck and demanded that he pay attention. He reminded himself, almost daily, that he was a young man, not yet twenty-five, and that he could always afford another month or two. Still, by 1937, he was almost ready to go back to school. Hart had never been much of a people person and could be acutely uncomfortable outside the realm of ideas and books. Pragmatism had never been his strong suit. He was, in fact, terrified by practical people. They always seemed so sure, so decisive. They never seemed to become paralyzed, as he so often was, by the other side of the coin. They had no doubts about appeasement. They did not prepare alternatives. It was not a strategy... It was a cult, and like all cults, it required enemies. Hart had broken all social contact with Tom, because even a whiff of association would have cost him his job. Hart was responsible for reviewing all the correspondence coming in from the British embassies in France and Germany and forwarding the important documents to Reginald. Strictly speaking, Reginald should have been reviewing most of the documents himself, but Reginald had been busy angling to get out of the FO and into something more politically charged, with a long-term view to a parliamentary position. Now that Europe seemed to have settled back down, the FO had returned to its rather dull routine of incrementally advancing minor British interests. Trade disputes, treaty interpretations, overseas budgets, general pulse-of-the-world business, yawningly boring stuff. Hart did not find all of that fascinating. In fact, reviewing correspondence was the least interesting aspect of his job. What he did find fascinating was the personalities around him. Deep in his heart, he felt that he had to solve the problem of action. All intelligence is limited, he thought, sitting at his desk and eating a ham sandwich. And in the realm of foreign policy? Everything we think we know is as nothing to everything we don't know. Yet these men are utterly confident. They seem to know what is exactly what. They do not hesitate. They can contradict themselves without batting an eye. They have no principles. They act as confidently and firmly as water. This was fascinating, and it kept heart at the FO for the crucial six months between the aftershocks of the Rhineland crisis and the rise of fears about Austria. He did keep up a writing correspondence with Tom, who had gone back to Europe for almost a year and then returned to teach flying in mid-1937. Hart felt quite dismal about all the people who were having exciting, action-filled lives while he rose early, scanned documents, and watched foolish men make instant decisions. Reginald and Hart had never been friends, just peripheral acquaintances through Tom. Working together did not bring them any closer. Reginald never asked Hart his opinion about anything. He took sheaves of papers without a word. They worked late sometimes, in silence. Hart did understand that Reginald's home life was not the greatest, and it affected Reginald's concentration. He lost his focus on occasion and would come back to himself with a visible kind of snap. Reginald was, Hart believed, decisive 
partly because he could not stand to be seen as indecisive. Any decision seemed better than the perception of indecision. But there was more to it than that. Any fool could make snap judgments. But Reginald was not a fool. He might be unwise. Hart was fairly sure that he was. But he was no fool. For one thing, he was an excellent politician. As Hart reviewed Reginald's correspondence, he found it uncanny how Reginald always knew who to have breakfast with, or who to meet for drinks, and where, and what to order. Hart had no sense of that. He never had, which he now realized would make his academic career rather difficult. He was dying to ask Reginald about this skill, talent, ability, soullessness, but he was sure that it would be the equivalent of asking the most dreaded question of the writer— where do you get your ideas? They just come. If they don't, you shouldn't be a writer. I just know who to have lunch with. If you don't, you shouldn't be in politics. What Hart didn't know was that Reginald was getting regular and rather harsh debriefings from Cuthbert about his dress, demeanor, answers, levels of politeness, condescension, scorn, and sycophancy. It is not always easy to become a political animal. Devolution can be an ugly business. Cuthbert did, at times, despair about Reginald's desire to please people, especially more powerful people. Cuthbert constantly remonstrated his protege about the boredom of effusiveness. Powerful people, he would yawn, are like beautiful women. You can't pursue a beautiful woman because she's beautiful. You can't try to ignore her because she's beautiful. Anything you do because she's beautiful is what every other man does. You have to notice that she's beautiful, otherwise you look mad, and then you have to forget that she's beautiful. It's the same with power. You don't react to the power. It's very... Hard hits the final barrier of entry to the inner sanctum. I yawn. That's my strategy. You all have to find your own, but you have to face your fear of power, your lust for power. Then you will become incorruptible. Sometimes Cuthbert would become embarrassed by his speeches. They were a little over the top and he had a hard time keeping a straight face about the word incorruptible. But Reginald was young and had potential and had to be brought along. When Hart received Churchill's report on his meeting with von Ribbentrop, he felt the blood drain from his face. He picked it up and went into Reginald's office without knocking. Reginald's face jerked up in fury and surprise. Oh, "'Sorry, Mr. Spencer,' said Hart, blushing and glancing at the door. But this is important. Give, said Reginald, holding out a hand. Where? Here. Churchill. Reginald blinked. Churchill? Has he received a promotion I am not aware of? He went to meet with von Ribbentrop at the— I know who von Ribbentrop is, snapped Reginald, scanning the page. Oh, why doesn't he ever just give the facts? He murmured, all this authorial intrusion, it behooves our honour. Good Lord, the man is still fighting the charge of the Light Brigade. 
He turned a page. Hart stood in front of Reginald's enormous desk on the balls of his feet, feeling dizzy and ashamed as if he were standing before a headmaster awaiting punishment. Reginald began flipping through the pages faster and faster. Before reaching the end and without looking up, he asked, Why did you think this was so important? Well, von Rebentrop is saying, I want to hear your explanation. I'm looking at Winston's. Germany is threatening to expand, not just threatening, promising. Reginald threw the report on his desk, sat back, and clasped his hands behind his head. Go on. Well, what the, what do you think? Reginald smiled. I asked you if you noticed. Well, it sounds rather dire. Of course it does. What are the barriers? What do you mean? Well, said Reginald slowly with insulting patience, what reasons do we have to believe that it's true? You think that Mr. Churchill might be lying? Oh, lying, who knows? That's for libel courts, not the F.O. But Churchill desperately wants England to rearm, and doubtless our efforts in that direction are not moving quickly enough for his liking. Hart started to say something, but Reginald held up his hand. One moment! Hart thought that, for an awful moment, that Reginald was about to say, young man, which would be ridiculously pretentious, since they were almost the same age. But Reginald just continued. Even if we accept Churchill's account as utterly accurate, which would be the first in the annals of general human memory, let alone Mr. Churchill's notoriously specific recollections, how do we know that Herr von Ribbentrop is actually transmitting Herr Hitler's words? And even if he is, how do we know that Herr Hitler actually intends to carry out his plans? All three men have their different motivations and goals. All three men are probably bending the truth to advance their respective causes, as we all do. So what seems dire at first glance quite quickly falls apart. Hart fidgeted. He felt a prickle of sweat and a little thrum of anger. Yes? asked Reginald. So you think this is not worthy of attention? Reginald smiled. Let me ask you this. Why do you think it is worthy of attention? Hart hesitated. There are so many reasons. Because the Germans are saying that they have not given up on the idea of getting more territory, that they're going to be on the move again. And? And if they took Austria, Czechoslovakia, Poland, all far, far to the east, yes? Well, yes, but... And then they will bump up against Russia, and with any luck they'll do a good deal towards wiping each other out. If von Ribbentrop said, even if I ignored all the other barriers to acceptance, that they were planning on expanding west, then I should be more concerned and probably follow it up. He noticed that Hart seemed to be rooted to the spot and smiled. You have something to say. Please be my guest. You're worth keeping on board. He goes east, said Hart rapidly, and comes to some accommodation with Russia. Then he is free to come west. And by then he's taken Czechoslovakia with the Skoda arms factories and can incorporate all the armies of the eastern countries. But if he makes a move eastwards, said Reginald blandly, wouldn't Stalin come running into our arms? He would have Herr Hitler in a trap. He rubbed his forehead with an index finger. 
It's quite touching, actually. Everyone thinks that they alone can see the future. But everyone can, including those far more intelligent than you or I. Even if we say that Herr Hitler is just itching for a war, he cannot just throw his weight around without Europe and Russia reacting violently. Germany is in the middle of Europe, after all, and can always be crushed by a two-front war. But in the last war... Reginald waved his hand. Oh, everyone is always fighting the last war. Everything has changed now. France has an agreement to come to the aid of Czechoslovakia. Please do not presume to lecture me on French obligations, snapped Reginald. It would be insulting. Hart felt his forehead prickling with sweat and became a little enraged with himself. To be personally frustrated is ridiculous when so much is at stake. So, if Hitler attacks Czechoslovakia, France will be drawn in, and we will have to follow France because of Flecarno. Sorry. Gosh, said Reginald, his eyes wide. Where would we be without you, Hart? For we poor idiots at the top have never even considered such obvious problems. We should all have been taken by surprise without your prescience. Hart nodded. I'm sorry, Mr. Spencer. Reginald shrugged. Look, I, I know you're underutilized. I can't quite figure out why you're happy to sit out there reading my letters, but I try not to spend too much time analyzing other people. Your motivations are your own, but you are an assistant. You'll have to do a lot more than read letters around here before we can even think of taking you seriously. Is that clear? Very clear, said Hart. I'm sorry for the intrusion. It, it, it won't happen again. Reginald smiled. Well... I give you permission in advance to throw my door off its hinges the moment that Hitler sets foot in Prague. Outside, in the hallway, Hart let down his habitual defences utterly and leaned his forehead into the white wall against the thick paint rolling it back and forth. As he walked down the hallway, he looked at the endless paintings of stone-faced old men, woodcuttings of hunting scenes and prints of sheep and streams and distant mountains. And it seemed to him that this hallway just led back into the past, into a place that would soon be no more and could never be revisited or retrieved. Things went from bad to worse. On November 11, 1937, as the acidic clouds gathered over Austria, Anthony Eden went to meet with the new Prime Minister, Neville Chamberlain. Eden, originally a staunch of Pisa, had drifted into Churchill's camp after going to Russia and witnessing the effects of Stalin's endless army purges. He did not believe that Russia would be a strong ally, and so felt that England had to rearm much more rapidly than she was at the present. He pleaded his case to Chamberlain, who became more and more impatient, and finally told him to go home and take an aspirin. The sad fact was that after years of supposed rearmament, England still could not send an army to France. The British chiefs of staff felt that getting close to France was a grave mistake because it might provoke Germany. France was going through yet more convulsive successions of ineffective governments. The Popular Front was shutting down industries across the country. As early as 1936, the labor movement had achieved the 40-hour workweek at a time when German arms factories were working around the clock. Halifax, the Lord President of the Council, returned from Berlin and told Chamberlain that Hitler had informed him that the question of colonies was the only outstanding issue between Germany and England. 
In mid-December 1937, the former French Prime Minister, now in the FO, bet the British ambassador to Berlin that Austria would cease to exist within three months. He won with two days to spare. Chapter 72 W. Churchill It has come to the attention of the British people that Herr Hitler is on the verge of attempting an invasion of Austria. Will the Prime Minister be so kind as to let this House and the British people and such foreigners as may be listening know what he intends to do should this invasion come to pass? N. Chamberlain As the Right Honourable Independent Member well knows, there are over six million Germans in Austria who at the end of the Great War were not consulted as to whether they desired independence or unification with Germany, despite the noble principles of Wilson's Fourteen Points. It is the specific policy of this government, as it has been for a number of previous administrations, to respect the principle of national self-determination. If Austrians wish to reunify with the Reich, it is scarcely a matter for this House to consider. W. Churchill I thank the Honourable Prime Minister for his succinct reply. There is, however, a matter which still requires some clarification. What does the government intend to do if the Nazis invade Austria? N. Chamberlain If Germany invades Austria, we shall lodge the strongest possible protest with the Wilhelmstrasse. We shall also begin the sanctioning process with the League of Nations. W. Churchill And if these fail... N. Chamberlain. With all due respect to the member opposite, I would like to say that I can only rationally deal with conjectures once removed. Herr Hitler has not invaded Austria, but I have answered the question as if he had. If Mr. Churchill wants me to go further and say what I should do if our responses to that possibility fail, then I must humbly plead a lack of omniscience in these matters. However, if Mr. Churchill can go further than me in prognostications, I invite him to do so, if he has bought his crystal ball. W. Churchill I can, I believe, answer that question, for it does not require any clairvoyance to understand Herr Hitler's motives. I said as long ago as 1930, three years before Herr Hitler came to power, that if he ever did come to power, the response of His Majesty's government should be simple. I said then, and I repeat now, if a mad dog makes a run for my trousers, I shall shoot him down. Cat calls. W. Churchill. I shall hold the floor. As this house well knows, Herr Hitler has repeatedly expressed, both in writing and speech, his desire to expand to the east, into the historic lands of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. If he takes Austria... He encircles Czechoslovakia on three fronts. The western half of Czechoslovakia, called the Sudetenland, is home to three million Germans. If we accept his right to seize Austria, what justification will we have to demand that he leave the Sudetenland alone? If he takes Austria, he will surely take the Sudetenland. The entire integrity of the Czech defences rests on the defence of their western border between the Sudetenland and Germany. If the Sudetenland is taken, the rest of Czechoslovakia will be helpless. It would be like taking away the Channel for us, or the Maginot Line for the French. And if this happens, doom will not be far behind. 
For then, Herr Hitler will have added almost 7 million Austrians and almost 4 million Czechs to his holdings, over 10 million subjects, workers and soldiers, and his eastern borders will be secure. Then where shall he turn? I can tell you in one word. France, to settle old scores, to avenge the perceived insults of the Versailles Treaty, to secure Germany's western borders once and for all, all the way to the sea. This is what Herr Hitler has spoken of for over a decade. If we wait until he glares at us from beyond the channel, it may be too late. We must act now. And if this house asks what shall we do, I shall tell you. We must sign a solemn treaty with France, Russia, Czechoslovakia, and possibly Italy to act as one against any annexation of Austria. Encirclement and loaded weapons is the only language that a brute like Herr Hitler understands. If we act decisively now, in the next week, and join forces with those with whom we possess, in combination, enough strength to contain Herr Hitler, we may yet see the collapse of Nazism before it has the strength to inflict a mortal wound on our continent. For history has shown many, many times that if a dictatorship is prevented from expanding geographically, it inevitably collapses politically. N. Chamberlain I thank the Honourable Member for his survey course on European geography. I'm sure the page boys appreciated it, even if the rest of us found it a tad remedial. The simple truth is that Germany is suffering under a perfectly legitimate historical grievance. The Versailles Treaty forbade the union of Germany with Austria and was imposed without consultation. Two years ago we saw the German expansion into the Rhineland, which has not been followed by any continued advancement. The treaty of almost twenty years ago could not have been expected to last forever. Also, Germany made moves towards Austria in 1934, but was deterred by the massing of Italian troops in northern Italy. Hitler shall not be able to exclude Mussolini from his calculations. But even if we were convinced by Mr. Churchill's arguments, what could really be done? Austria is almost the entire length of Europe away. We could not reach it by air. We have no land forces to speak of. Does Mr. Churchill hope to prevent the annexation of Austria with fiery speeches? For, and this is most surprising, given that Mr. Churchill is quite a fan of the empire, it is no secret that we lack the strength to defend both Austria and our empire. Thus, given that we have to make a choice, it seems to me wise to defend what we already have, rather than to throw resources into a fight to defend what we have never possessed. And finally, given the difficulty of transporting our armed forces halfway around the world, and the admitted imminence of German action suggested by Mr. Churchill, it would seem unlikely that we would be able to intervene in time. Mr. Churchill, it is unwise to allow errors to compound. We have neglected our defences for many, many years even as German militarism has been rising on the continent. Yes, we have refused to rearm sufficiently to meet the threat. This is why we must act in concert with the other great powers of Europe. If we achieve this, then General Beck, the leader of the German forces, shall see the following. France has an eightfold superiority in the Rhineland. He would face thirty to forty Czech divisions in the east, containing one and one-half million well-trained, well-armed men. These divisions would be huddled behind the defensive line, which in years past 
had absorbed the attacks of thirty front-line German divisions, the main strength of the German army at the time. And if Beck looks eastward, he would see Russian airplanes, laden with bombs, lifting off from airfields in Romania and Poland. The British Navy would be mobilizing and putting to sea, ready to strangle German imports. This is a war which could not be sustained by Germany for more than a few months, and it would be the end of Germany as a country, as a culture, and as a historical entity. Herr Hitler would be overthrown. That is my firm conviction. All he has been doing hitherto is bluffing. But soon the time will come when he will not have to bluff, and by then it shall be too late. And history, if history will even remain a discipline after a general Nazi victory, will not judge us well for muddling a hundred million people into total war. Chapter 73 Tom did not know anyone in Vienna. He landed his airplane in mid-February 1938 and took a room at a rather decrepit hotel only a few minutes away from the airfield. He was not a fan of Spartan accommodations, but Churchill had warned him to be as close as possible to the airfield because he believed that events would move rapidly and that getting out might be a problem. As always, when Tom got into Vienna, he had the problem of trying to figure out who to approach first. He had noticed the number of Jews right away. Yamalki and corkscrew sideburns were everywhere. As usual, the life of the city seemed to be going on without interruptions or uneasiness. He decided to go and talk to Sir Michael Pelleret, the British ambassador to Austria. He presented his press credentials at the British Embassy, but was informed that he would have to wait until four o'clock for an interview. Tom spent the time walking the ancient and beautiful streets of Vienna. He was astounded at the vitality of the city. He overheard intense arguments on street corners about the future of the city and of Austria under Nazi rule. As usual, Nazism was viewed as a temporary aberration, a movement which would self-destruct under its own virulence. Also, it seemed that many of the intellectuals did not think that the Nazi leaders actually believed their own propaganda. They could not really be that anti-Semitic, for instance, because such prejudices were so discreditable. No, it had to be that they needed the Jews as enemies to unite their people. It was a necessary lie. This was not the first time that Tom had heard the phrase. It always reminded him of Plato, who had the same argument in the Republic. People are too dense to know what's good for them, so leaders have to lie. Tom felt despair once more enter his soul. These beautiful buildings, the galleries, theatres, universities, and all the collective grandeur of a thousand years of exquisite architecture, all was defended, in essence, by people whose only response to an imminent and deadly threat was to play at amateur psychology. It was arrogance and cowardice, and Tom could not help but wander the streets and wonder why this particular virus had taken such a hold of the minds of good and noble people. When did moral men become so impotent? he wondered. But as he rounded yet another corner and gasped at the wonders unfolded against the skyline, the thought struck Tom 
that it was quite unfair to imagine that the impotence of moral men was a notion that could only be applied to others. For what have I been able to achieve? He thought, I cannot stop Reginald, or my father, or rouse my mother. I have gotten heart into the F.O., but nothing has come of that. And, he thought, I have been unable to tell Gunther that I know, that I know the truth. Tom had only met with Gunther twice since the end of 1936. He had not met with Churchill at all. The first time had been purely personal. In mid-1937, Gunther had come to Tom's flat in the late afternoon, and they had gone to dinner. The talk had been pleasant, consciously non-political. Tom told the story of Jacqueline, who had vanished from his life. Gunther told the story of his own bachelorhood. He had, he said, been in love with a woman when he was younger, but she had been married, and nothing had come of it. Tom had been too moved to probe further. He imagined that this is what it must be like to have a father that you could really talk to once you were in your mid-twenties, and could chat with the ease of years and the natural relaxation of authority, to discuss rather than be guided. He did manage to avoid weeping, at least until later, but it was an effort. When he did weep, lying on his couch later, Tom briefly wondered where his blubbery nature had come from. He remembered Churchill's emotional nature, and thought for a moment that his mother was lying, and it was in fact Churchill who had been his father. But Churchill was notoriously asexual, so that couldn't be it. And if his mother were to have lied to him twice about his parentage, he would have to disown her. After the passion of their last meeting, Tom expected every day to receive a letter from his mother, covered with tears, but written at such an angle that he would know she was out of bed. He had discovered this trick long ago. His mother's letters were slightly more slanted when she wrote in bed. It helped him picture her mental state. If she said she was optimistic but was actually in bed, eh, that was bad. If she wrote that she was depressed or anxious but penned the letter from her desk, that was not as bad. But no letter came. Nothing came, not from any member of his family. Tom was not blind to the consequences of yelling at his mother. She was the frail hibiscus forever guarded by still air and anxious gardeners. To bring any kind of emotional force to the maternal cobweb minefield was an unpardonable sin, but it was a great secret, of course, and could not be spoken of. Tom did not expect to receive even an admonitory letter from Quentin or Reginald. However, he would know that the incident had been walled over when he received a dutiful letter of little news but none came. His relationship with his nieces was curtailed too, which was a constant source of pain. Hitherto he had been a welcome addition to the Spencer family life because he was very close with his nieces. Wendy never liked to leave them with strangers, but was comfortable after only about an hour of instructions, leaving them with Tom. Tom loved them to death. He loved them with all the passion of knowing that death was forever closing in. They were infinitely different, but endlessly the same. Jocelyn was a calm, focused, silent child. 
Lillian II was a screamer, constantly unsettled, but with a rapidity of understanding that was almost frightening. Tom believed that he understood them. Jocelyn was curious and spent a lot of time poring over her impressions and felt little need to make return impressions upon the world. Lillian was bitingly fast but random and undisciplined. Tom loved them both for different reasons. He found that his heart was much, much larger than he thought. Other than Catherine, when he was growing up, he had had precious little to love without restraint. But with his nieces, he learned that love was best when it was without restraint. It is a geyser, not plumbing. To fall into absolute adoration was a beautiful thing. Tom was forever driven to do whatever he could to protect his lovely nieces for two reasons. The first was that the thought of them coming to harm made him both enraged and despairing. The second was that he hoped, against hope, true, that he might one day be able to have children of his own. After Jacqueline vanished, Tom wrestled with his desire to get back in touch with her. In her application form for a pilot training, she had, fortunately, given her parents' address where she was staying at the time. So he knew that he would always be able to get in touch with her because in that part of the country, parents just didn't move around. Tom wrote several letters, but never sent them. He could not forget her and found that with a tangible ache, her face arose in his mind at the most incongruous times. When he was fixing an engine, for instance, he dropped a spark plug into the bowels of the motor, and he imagined her giggle right in his ear and almost dropped his spanner as well. Or when he was cooking his lonely meals, he imagined her sitting at the table and chatting about nothing in particular, fixing her stockings, smiling. He had tried a few other women, but ended the dates prematurely. On his return from Europe in 1937, he had started up his flying school again, but found that his charms had worn thin. Perhaps news had gotten around that he had bedded Jacqueline and refused to date her, or perhaps he had spent too much time in one place to retain the proper title of Mysterious Man with Mysterious Burden. By now it was probably Silent Man Drowning in Self-Pity. So that was that. He was training pilots with a committed ferocity that he did not question. These future knights of the sky would be able to stave off the deaths of millions for some weeks or months, but not prevent them completely. Tom imagined endless lines of shipping flowing across the Atlantic to the New World, taking women and children, and his heart would lift. But then he pictured endless waves of German airplanes rising from aircraft carriers, and it would sink again. But he wanted to kill where he would himself die. He wanted to claw the German pilots down in endless clumps and then kick their heads across the burning countryside. Tom had little doubt that he would die in the sky. He would join the Royal Air Force when war came. Not before, because he was no fan of authority and didn't want to be posted to India or Singapore and if it took too long to get an airplane, he would steal one and flame out in a burst of falling fire. Tom glanced at his watch, then realized he had not changed it to local time. 3.40 p.m. 
he called a taxi and went for his meeting with Sir Palerette. Sir Palerette was a genial, moon-faced man with a toothbrush moustache and a high forehead. Tom was ushered into his office. Sir Palerette was apologetic. When you're the most busy, everyone needs you. So, Mr. Spencer, you write for the Times? I am a freelance reporter, but have connections with the Times. There is no guarantee that what you have to say will get published. Sir Palerette seemed a little disconcerted. However, he smiled gamely. All right. A rickety soapbox is better than none, I suppose. Now, do you want to ask questions, or should I just let rip? Let rip, replied Tom, warming to the ambassador almost immediately, as long as I can take notes. Be my guest. Austria believes that England is her last hope. You have that? That has to be verbatim, if I might. Good. France is out. Every time Germany has made a move, France has been between governments. France is now between governments. Everything comes down to Italy. If Hitler thinks that Italy will intervene, he will not act. Going into Austria makes Italy vulnerable. That's what happened last time when the Nazis murdered Dolphus. So Hitler's entire will is bent on Mussolini. The British government is aware of this, but senior officials don't want to give anything to Italy unless Italy withdraws its troops from the Spanish Civil War. Italy calls them volunteers, but it's pure nonsense. Churchill wants to drop that requirement. He wants Italian support against Hitler in exchange for England's recognition of Italian authority in Abyssinia. Wait, said Tom, writing rapidly. All right, all right, thanks. Go on. No, no, wait. What does Italian support mean? I don't know, said Sir Palerette, spreading his hands. England doesn't want Germany to annex Austria, but HMG won't sign any treaties to that effect. Nothing exists in writing to express our will to prevent Germany from seizing Austria. Naturally, Herr Hitler is drawing the obvious conclusions. My perspective is, even if we can't prevent it, we oughtn't make it quite so easy for him. Tom's pen stopped scratching. He raised his head. You don't think Hitler can be stopped? Materially? Absolutely. The combination of any two great powers would be enough. At least four have a good motive, and for whom a German annexation of Austria would be an utter disaster. England, France, Russia, and Czechoslovakia. There's no army here to speak of, so I don't include Austria. Without England, the other three will never be able to get a treaty going. France is too unstable, and Czechoslovakia doesn't trust Russia. But material concerns are the least important factors, in my view, anyway. Sir Palerret smiled sadly. If I thought otherwise, I should have joined the army. The real question is whether these countries have the will to threaten war. Tom swallowed, terrified of asking the question. And, and you think not? If they didn't combine to save the Rhineland, said Sir Palerette simply, it won't happen now. Tom's pen stopped. He sat, motionless. Of course it was true. It was true, and... It had always been unspoken. There was something fascinating about a man who could speak such an obvious and terrible fact with such detachment. Churchill and Gunther were always passionate in their opposition to appeasement. Reginald, Quentin, and all the others were always scornful and contemptuous in their defense of it. Sir Palerette was neither. He spoke the truth, but did not rail either for or against it. Tom was riveted. He put his notebook down. What... What are you going to do? 
Sir Pelleret smiled. Well, that was quick. The interview, I mean. Well, I'm going to take my family to America, and we shall live out our days. Do you not think that anything can be done? A brief look of pain crossed the older man's features. Oh, it's such a terrible thing to say to a young man. But no. No. Why? Why not? Oh, there are so many reasons. And I really shouldn't be doing this, but... He leaned forward, his tone becoming slightly more personal. The leaders are not leading. They're not explaining to the general populace that conflict cannot be avoided by sticking our collective heads in the sand. The general populace is terrified of war, and for good reason. But no one is telling them that war can only be averted by strength. Even the term appeasement contains a considerable lie. It suggests that England is appeasing by granting concessions which it could otherwise withhold. But if England is not prepared to use its military, then we can do nothing to prevent the dictators from taking whatever they want. It is not appeasement unless we can withhold some good. Otherwise, it is just inaction. It is not a strategy. It is just cowardice, plain and simple. And there is one other thing. Well, two. Yes, asked Tom, his eyes dull. First, the current administration is composed almost entirely of middle-class businessmen. They are used to negotiation. They cannot conceive of war. Churchill, Eden, and the others are all old-school aristocrats, our good old warrior class. They've been at this by the bloodline for almost a thousand years. They know what to do. And second, a strange perception has arisen that somehow treaties were responsible for the outbreak of the Great War— so these men are terrified of entering into or upholding any international obligations. They want flexibility of action, so they won't guarantee the integrity of any country. Maybe France. So the dictators can do what they please. If the only thing standing between Hitler and Austria is Mussolini, Austria will not last a month. Tom lowered his pen and closed his eyes. Chapter 74 Neville Chamberlain was an impatient man, a vain man in many ways, a man who detested any excess of emotion, a man who believed that everyone could walk out of a negotiation happy if everyone was willing to give up something. He believed that the world was mostly made up of children masquerading as adults, and that the majority of international conflicts could be avoided or averted if only people would just grow up a little. Chamberlain believed that some kind of moral force operated in international conflicts. His knowledge of the world was very limited. He had been a domestic businessman and then a politician, and had never operated outside the jurisdiction of a single, all-encompassing legal system. He believed, perhaps unconsciously, that the law was more than statutes, that it had some real power in the world. In domestic negotiations, the absolutism of law was implicit in every agreement. Men were honourable and negotiated in good faith because they knew that they would be arrested if they broke their word. In the international sphere, a far different ethos prevailed. It had always prevailed, and probably would always prevail. Law exists within countries. 
Between countries nothing exists but a state of nature. Domesticity is ethical. The world between countries is pure anarchy. The law of the jungle. Kindness is a virtue of the hearth. In the chilly amoral space between borders, strength is the only coin. Chamberlain did not get along with Anthony Eden. Their antagonism began over the Abyssinian crisis. Eden made his name by arguing for strong sanctions against Mussolini at the League of Nations, sanctions which he seemed willing to wage war over. He wanted to stand as one with the French and was willing to work with Russia for their mutual protection against the Nazi threat. Then, in January of 1938, the FO received a telegram from the American president, Roosevelt. FDR, alarmed by the growing tensions in Europe, wanted to bring all the European powers together for a conference to discuss their various grievances. Churchill found out about this and was overjoyed. He saw it as a chance to bring the Americans in on the side of the British by exposing them to the madness of the dictators. Also, he hoped that the conference would expose the dictators to the close relationship between England and the United States, which might give them pause. Chamberlain rejected FDR's offer. When they found out about this, both Churchill and Eden were amazed beyond words. Chamberlain was not experienced in world politics. To slap away a friendly hand reaching across the waters was arrogant beyond words. Chamberlain argued that such a conference would just result in the Americans lecturing England and France about moral principles while leaving the thankless task of enforcement to them. In other words, a repetition of the Brussels conference about the Far East. Eden was very concerned with the growing threat against Austria. He felt some personal stake in Hitler's aggression. In March of 1935, Hitler had told him personally that Germany had no interest in Austria, a message which he had passed on to the cabinet and which had had its effect on British foreign policy. Now that Hitler was breaking his word, Eden was determined to reverse the damage that his own naivete had caused. They both met with the Italian ambassador to London, Count Dino Grandi. Grandi received them with grave courtesy. He was a proud man, with arrogant eyes and aquiline nose and oiled, back-swept hair. They got down to business right away. "'It is our intention,' said Chamberlain, "'to come to a speedy understanding with Signor Mussolini "'with regards to Austria, Spain, and Abyssinia.' "'It is our intention also,' chimed in Grandi, "'to keep and deepen the historical friendship "'between our two great nations. "'Now, can you tell us what your government's position is regarding Austria?' "'We have no fixed position regarding Austria. "'Do you have any opposition to a German annexation?' "'We would prefer it if the balance of power in Central Europe "'did not shift rapidly, but do not consider it a matter of the utmost importance.' "'You yourself did oppose it in 1934,' said Eden. Grandy nodded. Uh, "'That is uh, true, but uh, many things have happened since then. "'We have become a pariah in the international community.' largely due to the influence of this fair island, over the matter of uh, Abyssinia. Uh, we 
we find this quite incredible. England owns a quarter uh, of the world, yet maligns us for taking over an inconsequential and backward African kingdom to, to prefer primitive Negroes to the heirs of the Roman Empire. That is mm, too much to take. Chamberlain began to say something, but Grandy continued. And um, uh, this matter of the uh, the Spanish Civil War, we have some enthusiastic young fascista who have uh, taken it upon themselves to go and aid their brothers under General Franco. Uh, this is true, but uh, it is not the fault of the Italian government that some Italians wish to go and fight against communism. Yet the British government is uh, forever trumpeting around that we have something to do with these brave and enthusiastic young men. We also find uh, this uh, attitude um, incredible. It was my understanding that we were as one in our opposition to the communists. You should be more complimentary. For it is uh, quite clear that uh, should the communists win in England, say, that you would uh, all be uh, murdered uh, in, in your beds. So we should be shoulder to shoulder, not at sword's length. So... You want British approval of your Abyssinian conquest, interrupted Chamberlain impatiently. Grandy paused delicately, shooting an appalled look at Eden's pale face. This would uh, be, be of help, he said after a moment. An assistance? And you want us to stop talking about your government's involvement in Spain? Yeah, yes. And in return? Grandy picked at his nails. Well, um, what is it you wish? Eden charged into the conversation. We have it on record that Signor Mussolini has agreed to withdraw these supposed volunteers from Spain. We are not partial to communism, but also feel that many principles of fascism are also anathema to our way of life. We do not wish to open any new discussions until Italy lives up to its former commitments. There is no point making new promises to us while your old ones remain unfulfilled. "'Well,' said Chamberlain smoothly, "'that's a bit much, Anthony. "'Mr. Grandy, we are willing to speak on these issues "'on the understanding that the matter of these Spanish volunteers "'can be looked into at some future date.' "'Grandy did not smile, but a flush of pleasure "'spread across his sallow cheeks. "'Of course, um, uh, Prime Minister, we, uh, "'we are more than willing to observe any inadvertent oversights "'we might have made.' "'I am, in fact,' continued Chamberlain, "'more than willing to accept a fascist victory in Spain "'in return for aid against Hitler.' "'My God!' ejaculated Eden, appalled. "'Please excuse my rather excitable colleague,' smiled Chamberlain. "'He and I do not always see eye to eye on matters of foreign policy. "'Yet the purpose and principles of such policies are mine, and mine alone,' "'he said coldly, glancing at Eden's shocked face. "'So let us continue, but... "'A fascist victory in Spain would be an utter disaster,' cried Eden. "'France would be encircled by hostile dictatorships.' "'Oh, I don't think we have as much to fear from the Italians and Spanish,' chided Chamberlain. "'Compared to Hitler, of course. "'Aren't you always the one telling me how dangerous Hitler is?' "'Eden's face was almost purple. "'His left leg jiggled rapidly. "'Yes, but that does not mean that we must sell out both Spain and France to oppose Hitler. "'We cannot oppose Hitler without allies.' Grandi sat back, grinning, watching them both. "'Yet you do not mind making deals with Russia,' 
said Chamberlain. Is that not just a little hypocritical? You can approach Russia, but I cannot approach Italy. Italy, if Italy is not at the other end of Europe, cried Eden. Compared to Russia, Italy is right on our doorstep. Chamberlain smiled. And so in a far better position to help us with Austria, no? As far as I understand it, we shall have grave difficulties getting Romania or Poland to accept the passage of Russian troops. Thus Italy is far more useful to us. <laughs> Please accept my apologies, Signor Grandi. We really should try not to air our dirty laundry in public like this, but sometimes it seems to happen. Nonetheless, he finished awkwardly. Grandi smiled and inclined his head. It seemed clear to him where Italy should place her allegiance, and he made his choice clear in his report. Two days later, Eden resigned. Lord Halifax, a staunch Chamberlain supporter, was put in his place. And so it was that the last of the anti-appeasers passed from the cabinet, and the road ahead was cleared. Almost immediately afterwards, Hitler received a message from Mussolini. The Italians would not interfere with his annexation of Austria. And so the tanks began to roll. Just before dawn on Saturday, March 12, 1938, for the first time since the Great War, German troops crossed their borders to occupy another country. <laughs>